I want you to imagine yourself looking. You're in an old antique shop. Imagine you're scurrying around an old antique shop. It's full of strange items from years long gone. You notice on an old cobwebby shelf up in the back corner hidden is a very, very old oil lamp. It is a bit dusty, so you decide to shine it up, and it begins to rumble and shake in your hands. A small wisp of smoke and glitter start to rise, and out of the spout standing before you is a nine-foot genie dressed in a blue sash with a white turban. He turns to you and says, Ah, master, you have rubbed my magic lamp. It has been hundreds of years since anyone has awakened me out of my sleep. That means you get one wish. Ask for anything you want and it will be yours. I'm at your service. Question is, what would you wish for? And it cannot be a thousand more wishes. It can't be. That is not fair. So it's kind of like a time machine in movies. It's not fair. You can't ask for that. So what would you wish for? Can I have anything? What would you wish for? Money, cold, hard cash, and lots and lots of it. Probably most of us in here would wish for that. Perfect health, an island in the Mediterranean, a new house. If you notice, I think the first thing that jumps to our mind are things, items to have. A better life of affluence and ease. That's what I would, I would ask for money, I'd be honest with you. That's the first thing I'd ask for. I'll take $200 million, please. That's what I'd ask for. That's who I am. But today we're going to meet a man who could ask for anything he wants, and that question's asked, and he could ask for anything he wants, and he doesn't ask right away for things. He doesn't ask for money or houses or an island or ease. What he wanted was something you can't measure, you can't count, you can't pile it up. He wanted wisdom from the living God so he could care for the nation that was just given to him. That man's name is Solomon, the third king, in our Glories Day series. Actually, not much in the Bible is said about Solomon compared to David and Saul in 1 Kings and 1 and 2 Samuel. So we're going to take two messages to talk about Solomon. He is a very interesting guy. There's nobody like him. We will pick up on his story in 1 Kings 3, and the title of our message this week is Heir of the Promise. He is the heir of the promise, and we'll understand that in a little bit. 1 Kings chapter 3, we're going to look at the first 15 verses. Actually, what happened right before this, his dad died. His dad was King David the second king in our series. He got rid of his older brother, Adonijah, because Adonijah, actually, what we're going to see is the throne was promised to Solomon, and Adonijah tried to steal it, tried to lie, lie to his mom. and They killed Adonijah. They killed uh, Joab, David's bloodthirsty general. And it ends in chapter 2. Look at the very last sentence in chapter 2, which is chapter 246, part B. It says, So... The kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. It's almost like wipe your hands on all of Saul's history. That's past. The house of blood is past. It's over now. Peace 
should reign. And that's where we begin. Chapter 3, verse 1. Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house in the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. The people were sacrificing at the high places. However, because no house had yet been built for the name of the Lord, Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father. Only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. And God said, ask what I shall give you. Another way to say it, ask anything and I'll give it to you. Verse 6, and Solomon said, you have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness and righteousness and an uprightness of heart toward you, and you've kept him, uh, you have kept for him this great and steadfast love, and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David my father. Although I am but a little child, I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people, whom you've chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for a multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, Because you've asked this, and have not asked for yourself long life, or riches, or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. Then he came to Jerusalem and stood before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and offered up burnt offerings and peace offerings and made a feast for all his servants. In a sense, uh, verses 1 through 15 is going to now be explained through the rest of 1 Kings up to chapter 9 and also 2 Chronicles. So what we need to do is we need to first ask the question, who is Solomon? Let's just get a pretty good idea of who he is, and then we'll continue on with what's happening here in chapter 3. Who's Solomon? We need to do some background. And I just want to take you to two verses to give you a really quick background. Go to 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel chapter 12. This was the worst story, I think, in David's life. David and Bathsheba, where he... You know the story. He sinned with Bathsheba, killed Uriah. We talked all about this. And as a consequence, Bathsheba, her first baby that was in her womb, died. That was a consequence for David's sin. And if we, we pick up in verse 24 and just listen to what it says. It's a pretty neat verse, actually. Then David comforted his wife, Bathsheba. This is right after their first baby died. He comforted his wife, 
and went into her, means he slept with her, and he lay with her, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon, means son of comfort or the son of peace. And the Lord loved him. So verse 24 is saying, Solomon was given to David and Bathsheba as a gift of comfort. The bringer of peace. I find this interesting. After God judges your sin and forgives, He brings comfort. He brings peace. Forgiveness always leads to comfort. Look at now, look at verse 25. And then in verse 24, the Lord loved him. And this is a very interesting thing. And the Lord sent a message by Nathan to the prophet, the prophet to, to David. And he called Solomon's name. God called Solomon this name, Jedidiah, because of the Lord. Jedidiah means loved by Jehovah, beloved, the beloved one of the Lord. It's a personal nickname. Can God do that? Is he allowed to do that? Is he allowed to favor people before he really knows who they are? Is he allowed to choose people like that? Shouldn't he wait to see who Solomon becomes before he really falls in love with him? It's, it's, like, uh, it's like he's showing special favors. Is he allowed to do that? Well, if you get mad at God, don't ask God to do something you don't do. When your child is born, you love him, don't you? Over every other child out there? I think that's what's happening here there is a what i would say there's a divine sovereignty at work here god does as he pleases and who are we to judge his choices it's funny how we say god's unfair to choose people jacob i loved esau i hated does he have the right to do that he did here and i'm not going to get into all of the idea of divine sovereignty and election but if god wants to do it Show special favor to somebody. It's his right. So he's Jedediah, beloved of the Lord. Third thing we're going to find out, and I like to think of him this way, and I've said this before, said it about a year ago. Solomon is to me, he, you know that uh, the, the most interesting man in the world? They stole that from Solomon. He's unbelievably interesting. I mean, let me show you. Go to the book of Ecclesiastes. He wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. It's right after Psalms, Proverbs, and then Ecclesiastes. And I want you to look at chapter 2. Verses 1 through 10. And this is Solomon writing about himself. He, he said, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this is also vanity. It, if you read the book, what he's trying to do, he's trying to evaluate life from a human perspective, trying to get meaning out of it, and he's trying to find meaning in all kinds of different things. And he says, really, it's all vain. If you're going to bank your life on all these different things, it's kind of meaningless. But look at the things he did. Verse 2, I said of laughter, it's mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? So he probably went to a lot of comedy shows, had guys come in and do comedy routines. Said, ah, Pleasure. He indulged in all kind of pleasure. Verse 3, how did he do this? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart still guiding me with wisdom. Strange statement. 
how to lay hold of folly, till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses. I planted vineyards for myself. So he's an architect. He's also a landscaper. He's a farmer. He's a wine dresser. I made gardens and I made parks and I planted in them all kind of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasures of kings and provinces. I got singers, so you had a nice CD collection, you know, with some hi-fi stereo in the back. He probably had a stage every night. He'd have his own home theater, live theater. Bless you, Rhonda. Both men and women and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. That's strange. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I'd expended doing it. Behold, all was vanity and striving after the wind. There's nothing to be gained under the sun. So he, here is a man who's done everything. The most interesting man in the world. Actually, that's a symbol of Solomon. It has all the things he jumped into. It's his coat of arms. It's, uh, he did it all. So he was son of comfort, the beloved of the Lord, and he was also this guy who surpassed Every man that ever lived in riches, pleasure, wisdom. But there's one more thing that needs to be said about Solomon. He was the heir to the promise. I'd say one of the greatest promises ever given. And we find this in 2 Samuel 7. So go to 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 15. This is when David, we talked about this about four weeks ago when David was praying to God and God said this to David. 2 Samuel 7, 12 to 15. He says, David, verse 12, David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, that's an idiom for when you die. David, when you're buried with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. So you're going to have a son who's going to have his kingdom established by me. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Remember last week, David couldn't build a house because he was a son of blood or house of blood? But Solomon could. Verse 14, I will be to him a father. He will be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him. And you're going to see that next week he gets disciplined. The rod of men with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love, my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul whom I put away before you. So here's two things God says. When David dies, number one, he's going to have a son come from his loins who's going to sit on the throne. And number two, he will build God's house This son will build God's house 
and sit on a throne that will be established forever. This is a promise. And the key to the promise is verse 15. Look at, the, look at verse 15. This is the foundation of the promise. My steadfast love will not depart. God's steadfast love will accomplish this promise. This word is the famous Hebrew word hesed. The loving kindness of God. This is the love that will not fail. This is the love that gives mercy to those who don't deserve it. This is the love that is not dependent on our righteousness. It's God's initiative love. It's all God's doing. His love is so strong, as it says in verse 16, this Hesed love is so strong, it is able to maintain a promise forever. We, we often give promises and they last maybe a year. But God's love is so strong when he promises something, it never stops. It never stops. You can ask, how can a promise last forever? Because this promise is coming from an eternal being who lasts forever. I want you to turn one more place, Hebrews 6. I want you to look at this close. I think you need to know this. This is one of these, this is one of these passages I turn to a lot in the quiet of my study. Because it's, this is bedrock. We, it's, it actually gives the idiom an anchor for the soul. It, it's what hooks you down when the waves are pushing you around and it causes you to stay firm. Hebrews chapter 6, 16 to 19. And so the writer of Hebrews, people don't know who he is. Is it Paul? Is it Apollos? But he talks about the nature of promises. That's what he's talking about. And he says, people swear by something greater than themselves. So often, you and I, when we really want to emphasize, if I promise to you, I promise you, and I swear, we shouldn't swear, but this is what he's saying. I'm on, uh, on my dead father's grave, I'll do this. It's kind of like emphasis, because how do I trust you? Well, my, I'm just telling you the truth. You can trust me. And so what he's saying is, people swear by something. They try to find something that has more a just stability than their mercurial, their frivolous selves. For people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes, an oath is the final confirmation. Let's shake on it. That's like an oath. I promise. So when God desired to show more convincingly the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable nature, character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. What he's saying is when God promises, he's using his character as his basis of that promise. That's why when you look in verse 13, where God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. So when God says, I'm telling you, what he's saying is, there's no one higher or heavier in glory that he can go to to give you promise that's why jesus says verily verily i say unto you when he says verily verily he's saying i'm telling you the truth can he go any higher than that some reason we just we are so used to people lying to us when god makes an oath we for some reason don't trust him 
Verse 18, he's saying there's two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, his character and his word. We who have fled to the refuge may have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this, his promise, his promise based on his character as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place, inner place with God, but also it changes us. When you realize God's character, that it is impossible for him to lie, it changes you. And you're going to see some promises in a little bit that he's given us. I like this phrase, it is impossible for God to lie. But aren't all things possible for God? Not necessarily. He can't lie. In his nature, he is true to the core. And when he makes a promise, it must come true or he no longer is God. Because God, by definition, is holy, he's perfect, and he's pure. And if he ever lied, he would lose that character quality. But he's infinite in purity and perfection. The reason this is so important is because the fulfillment of all things, our entrance into heaven, becoming daughters and sons of the living God forever, is not dependent on our actions, on us. There are so many of you, when you sin, you are like, oh, I lost my salvation. Who is your eternal position dependent on? A man who makes you an oath who is unchanging. God is absolutely trustworthy and it is his character that brings his promises to fruition. So let's go a little bit more into depth about this love of God and how it's exercised in Solomon's life. Because you're going to see the same way that it kind of worked through Solomon's life, it is currently working through our life. Let's go back to 1 Kings 3. It's not necessarily a perfect match, but there's some qualities of Solomon's life we can claim for ourselves. But don't try to do what he did in Ecclesiastes. You'll be in big trouble. And so before, before we read this a little bit and go into it, I just have to admit something. When it comes to studying great figures of the Bible, like for instance, let's take Job or Moses or even David. There is this, I would say, a tendency for all of us to whitewash them. We just do. So when we say Moses, Jared say Moses. So when he says Moses, oh, there's nobody like Moses, this perfect guy. No, do you know Moses was a murderer? You know, we don't, we don't like to talk about that because we kind of like to have statues Carved out by Michelangelo. There's Moses. There's Abraham. We like to see them better than the average normal human. And so often in our study, and I'll admit it, when I do it, I look for high points and I try to downplay the low points because I want to bring out the high points of these men. But if you've noticed in studying even David and Saul, I try not to do that. David's life is bad. And we found that out. I try to present him as the scriptures want us to see him. And you know how the scriptures want us to see people in the Bible as sinners who need a Savior? Everyone. And it, the same thing's true with Solomon. Just how it kicks off. I mean, it's imperfection jumps out right away. So we begin in chapter 2, verse 46 again. 
And it says, so the kingdom was established. I'm like, all right, I'm ready to just, oh, just enjoy. Enjoy the story of Solomon without having to, oh, man, what's going on? Right away, chapter 3, verse 1, Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter. Wait, time out. Blow the whistle. He's not supposed to be marrying a pagan. What is going on? We even learn later this was a bad, really bad move. Well, you can hear some people say, well, that's the way they did it back then. Yeah, but it's still not right. Yeah, but they formed alliances of peace with other nations by offering daughters. Deuteronomy 17 frowns on that. It wasn't right. And next week we're going to see just how wrong it was. Oh, And then we go to verse 2 and 3. Verse 2. The people were sacrificing at the high places. However, because no house had been built for the name of the Lord. All right, so people are sacrificing on high places to false gods. That's what that means. Because there was no Jerusalem yet. <laughs> Wait, you shall have no other, no other gods before you. What is going on in verse 3? Solomon loved the Lord. Oh, that's great. That's great. See, he loved the Lord. Walking in the statutes of David his father. See, way to go, Solomon. Only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places too. Wait a minute. I'm confused. I thought this guy was impeccable. No. He's a sinner just like you and me. It's very confusing. Solomon loved God and yet offered sacrifices to pagan deities. I don't like this. It's very complicated. We like things cut and dry. And yet, verse 5 enters, and God still reaches out to him in a dream. Verse 5, at Gibeon, that's where they used to have the ark. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream and said, Ask whatever you want and I'll give it to you. God is initiating his love in verse 5 to Solomon. So what I'm going to say, the first thing about this love is God's steadfast, God's hesed love, is what initiates a relationship with fallen mankind. While we were yet sinners. Even Solomon recognizes this. Look at verse 6 and 7. Solomon said, you have shown great and steadfast love, there's that word, steadfast love, to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness and righteousness and uprightness of heart towards you, and you've kept for him his great and steadfast love, there's that word again, and have given him a son to sit on his throne. And now, O Lord my God, you've made your servant, that's Solomon saying, you've made me king in place of David, my father, although but little Actually, he's saying, I have nothing to offer. I don't know how to go or come in. What he's saying is, I have no idea why you'd want me to be king. I'm just a young guy. Some people speculate he's maybe about 12 this age, probably 20. He's young. He's not the man of renown yet. And God chose him? He was chosen because of God's promise. To David. It's the same for you and I. Look at Romans 5. I have it up here. You can look at it later. This is, this is a verse you have, to, you have to meditate on this verse. I'm telling you, there's so many people that miss this verse. It's amazing. It's Romans 5, 6 through 10. Listen to what it says. While we were still weak, that means unable to save ourselves. We have no ability. We're like Solomon, a weak little person. While we were still sinners. That word means purposely 
missing the mark of perfection. While we were enemies, that means I don't want him in my life. We were reconciled to God. You know what that means? That word means? We were made sons of peace. Solomon's. Reconciliation means to bring peace. While we what did we do? Nothing. To earn God's favor? Nothing. That's that's who I was before I knew God. I wanted nothing to do with him. I really didn't. I, I would tell people I love God. Like, I can remember going to church. I can remember dressing up. But I remember going to church, so I'd, I'd pick the ones where I could get out right away, real quick. Man, I want to get out of here quick. And the reason why I picked them quick, just between you and me, nobody else is listening, I wanted to go to the bar that night. So I'd pick it real quick. But I said I loved them. I would sing songs that I'd say. I believe, you know, like Christ died for me. I believe that. I'd even do that sometimes. A genuflect. Like that. Truth is, though, I thought I loved God, but I loved myself a whole lot more. I did foolish things. I had weak passions and impulses. Yet God saved me. I don't know why. But I know this. He loved me when really nobody else did. And that is it. Some of you feel so unworthy you don't deserve anything. You feel so unable to please God. You feel small. You feel weak. Guess what? Please listen to this. Salvation is not dependent on you. It's not. It is his love that pursues us, it saves us, it chases us, it grabs us, it woos us. If we go back to 1 Kings 3 and we keep reading, Solomon understands this. In verse 8 and 9, he wants this. Listen, verse 8. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you've chosen, a great people. Too many be numbered or counted. So give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern good and evil for who is able to govern your great people. Solomon accepts God's love, and he wants it. And to me, if you are meant to be an heir of the promise of God, like if we talk even about election, which some people don't like to do, but if God chooses to love people, how do you know you're the one that he chooses to love? You will want him and his life. Solomon doesn't run. A lot of times, if you, we go back to Saul's life, remember King Saul? A lot of times, he would almost distance himself from the Lord. Oh, that's your Lord, Samuel, not mine. Solomon embraces the Lord. He embraces his will for his life. So if you are meant to be an heir of the promises of God, you will gladly receive his wooing. You will want it. Solomon could have anything, and he wanted God's will. A true heir wants to be with his father. A true heir wants to be with his father. 
The New Testament is very clear on this in many places, but to me the clearest is John 1, 12, and 13. I love this verse because I didn't understand it for the longest time. I thought, really, I thought earning God's favor is the way you get it. But it says, all who receive him, to all who receive him, all who take his invitation, receiving isn't running after, it's catching. We call this passive action. Like a like a sail on a boat, it catches the wind and moves. To all who receive him, who believed on his name, he gave the right to become an heir. And then it goes on, born not of flesh, meaning not, not, it doesn't matter what family you are from, nor the will of the Father. It wasn't because you're baptized as an infant or anything like that. Nor the desire of the Father, not because of what you've done, but because of His choice. At its essence, saving faith says, I want Him and His will. I could have the whole world, but I want to be a child. That's all I want. That's really all I want. I love how 1 John 3, 1 says it. The King James begins it with the word behold. I love that word for that verse. It says, behold what manner of love. Behold, listen to me. The ESV says, see this? Look, look. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us. That we, that we, you and I, should be called children of God. And that's what we are. He's, he's saying it, and it, are you excited about that? It's funny, I was, when I was going to Moody, we had this guy come and tell us his testimony. This guy was raised Muslim. He was raised in Egypt. And he said his best friend was a Christian, and his best friend invited him to church one day. And he walked into church, and he said, you know what they're preaching on? 1 John 3, 1. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us, that we should be called the children of God. And the Muslim kid said, in Islam, we're not the sons of, we're just servants, slaves. And he went home, and his dad said, where'd you go? And he said, oh, nowhere. He goes, you went to that church, didn't you? I never want you to see you go to that church again. He's about 12 at that time. When he was about 25, he said he was walking on the streets of Jerusalem, and there was a Christian church. He walked into the Christian church, and he said, I sat down, and you know what they're preaching from? 1 John 3, 1. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us. And he said, that's what I needed. I needed a God that wanted me to be his child. That's what we got because of his love. So when we believe, when we believe, when we receive the invitation, we become heirs. God promised it. And remember, it's impossible for God to lie. I know I'm his child because my future is dependent on his Hesed love. Now, to me, we get to the interesting part. Salvation is a gift of God's love. We said this, we, for God so loved the world. And so what we call this is an unconditional gift. He's done it. He's done everything. It's unconditional. All you do is receive it. So there's no conditions based on you need to be somebody, do something. We've been, I want to hammer on this. It's unconditional. However, there is a conditional aspect to it. Salvation is freely ours when we become children. 
However, when it, when it is ours, we can decide if we want to live under God's blessing or not. What do I mean? Solomon's case, he wanted God in his life not just as an heir, but as a daily help and guide. So in 1 Kings 3, 9, look at verse 9. He says to God, give your servant. God says basically to have whatever you want. So Solomon says, give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern. He's asking for wisdom. He's asking for more. He wanted God's help in life. So God blessed him in 10 through 14. It pleased the Lord, and God said, because you asked this, I'll give it to you. And, verse 13, I'll then give you everything else. God's longing to give. It's funny, there's two ways we tap into his conditional blessings. Conditional means there are some things he wants us to do. Ask is the first word. Ask. What do you want? Ask for it. Verse 5. Ask it, and I shall give it to you. Ask. We'll talk a little bit about that. Is this a name it, claim it deal? Well, didn't Jesus say, ask and you shall receive, seek and you shall find, knock and the door will be open? We'll talk about that in a second about what that means. And then the second conditional word that you can find all through the Bible that we have to learn how to hook into is the word if. If. Verse 14. And if you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments, then I will lengthen your days. It's a conditional promise. If you do this, I'll do this for you. So does this work salvation? Let me put it to you like this. Hopefully this makes sense. Remember, remember one time thinking of it like this. When you become a Christian, according to Romans 5, you enter into this land of grace. It's like a new land. It's kind of like that table right there. Full of food. Just nice. You did nothing to deserve this. You were invited in. It's given to you freely because God loves you, so you are welcome at this wedding feast, the family dinner, because God wants you there. What did you do to deserve it? Nothing. It's there it is. But to eat, you must step towards the table and grab the food. You can, uh, if you want, stand by a tree, lean on it, say, I don't want that. I don't want anything. I don't want it. But if you want to eat, God invites you to go up and grab. So if you walk, extend your hand, grab some food and eat it, it will be yours. If you want something, do what's required to receive it. It's conditional. So how do we do this practically? Well, number one, know this. God wants to, he wants to bless a child's life. He does, and he helps you get there by giving you ask and if. You'll read them all through the New Testament. What if you ask for something that is out of God's will? That's the first question. Well, not everything is good for you. You've got to understand, God is not a dispensing machine. He's a father. He's a dad. He's not a mechanical machine. He's not a, like what a lot of people just name it, claim it. He's not a magic trick. If I say the magic word, he's your dad. And if your son asks you for something, hey, Dad, can I have five pounds of circus peanuts right now? No, that's silly. No. So we, we ask things like that. 
what if you ask for something that is out of God's will? Well, he's, he knows what you need, but he's delighted that you ask. And sometimes he'll give it to you. But if you don't ask, you don't receive. That's the point. Ask. Scripture is loaded with things to ask for. Listen to this. Ble- listen to this. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. I believe a true heir will hunger for that. Ask for it. If anyone wants wisdom, he says in James 1, let him ask. And then Ephesians says, God is able to do amazingly, abundantly above all that we ask for or think. Ask. If statements are all over the Bible too. Here's a few of my favorites. John 14, 23. If you love me, you'll obey my commandments. And I will make my home in you. So do you want God's home to be in you? Yes. Then love God. How? Obey him. If you obey him, he'll make his home with you. It is my contention, and I can't prove this. I believe the reason why the, Joseph was the father is Jesus because he obeyed him before Mary gave birth, and God was happy to have his son live in his house with him. I, I really do. I think he was just obedient. He, here's an obedient man. You know what? I'm going to make my house in him. The Spirit does the same thing. Exactly the same thing. Do you want to shine like a star in heaven? This is a tough one. Like when you want to just be different, just be different. You want to shine like there is a Christian. Do you want to? All right. Are you ready? Are you ready? This is a hard one. If you want to shine, yes, I do, then don't grumble or complain. Philippians chapter 2. Oh, wait a minute. So you mean to tell me if I, in order to shine, I've got to not grumble or complain? Yes, it's a conditional promise. He doesn't just make you shine. Stop grumbling and complaining. I don't want to shine. Okay. (laughs) There's a lot of Christians that just don't want to shine. That's fine. But is that really bringing glory to your God? How about this one? How about this one? This is tough. Are you ready? Do you want to really follow Jesus? I mean, really. Not just mere lip service. I mean the full nine yards. Because there's a lot of people that claim to be followers. Yes, I'm a Christian. Here's the full nine yards. If any man wants to follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. If is the key word. So if you feel distant from the Lord, I mean far away from God, do you deny yourself? Probably not. I just feel so far away from God. Do you deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow him? Or do you give in to your desires, laziness, fleshly wants, anxiety? Then you really won't have Christ that closely. It's like, a, it's like a table. Do you want the food or not? If you want the food, obey the if. It's conditional. The table won't move to you. God told you how. It's an invitation. And when you do, it is then and only then God will show up in your life. First Kings, after Solomon asked, God blessed him. And when God blessed, people took notice. Look at chapter 3, verse 48. Wait, 28. Chapter 3, verse 28. 
This is after God gave him wisdom. He ruled on this case about this lady who had a baby and this other lady had a baby. This lady fell asleep on her baby and her baby suffocated, but she wanted the other lady's lady, a baby. So he, they went up to King Solomon and they said, whose child is this? And he said, cut the baby in half. <laughs> cut the baby in half. And the real mother said, okay, she can have the baby. And the other, the non-real mother said, no, cut the baby in half. So he knew his wisdom astounded people. So verse 28, and all Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered. And they stood in awe of the king because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. God was blessing Solomon and people took notice. That's called bringing glory. Chapter 4, verse 20. Because Solomon wanted God and because Solomon desired to be a good king, verse 20, Judah and Israel were as many as the stand of the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. Blessings come to people who ask. Verse 43, or 34 of chapter 4. You can actually begin in verse 33 because God gave him wisdom. He spoke of trees from the cedar that's in Lebanon, the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke of all the beasts and all the birds and the reptiles and the fish in verse 34. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. This is probably the first biology class. And then if we go to 1 Kings 8, 41 to 43. And this is the purpose of what God really wants for all of us. So basically says, Likewise, when a foreigner, God's talking to Solomon, who's not of your people, Israel, comes from a far country for your namesake. Oh, Solomon's saying this to God. For they shall hear of your great name in your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm when he comes and prays toward this house. Here in heaven, your dwelling place, and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you and do your people Israel, that they may know that this house that I build is called by your name. So I had a teacher at Moody that said in the Old Testament, God designed the world for people to come and see his glory. In the New Testament, the temple's in us, and the glory is to go and tell. Be faithful. Go and tell. And when you do, go to the next slide. Fulfilled promises bring glory, that means shining brilliance, to God. Responding to the conditional promises brings glory to God. God wants you to, God wants you to seek his blessing because when he gives it, glory returns back to him. It all begins with want. And this is the hardest thing for me. I am... Actually, I thank God for my wife because she brings this out of me. I am a, the most content person you've ever met. So, for instance, when I lived in my apartment in college, all I had, literally all I had was a futon mattress, and I had stacked um, crates where my books went in. I had no curtains. No, <laughs> That was enough for me. I'm, just, I'm a kind of a content guy. But there's a problem with that contentment. I don't pray that much because I don't, I don't know how much I want to bring glory to God. Our job on earth is to do all we can to bring glory to God. Ask Him for things. Ask Him for, man, let tons of people come to this Renaissance Fair. Man, let tons of people come. Let, let me do something. Maybe 
Maybe just write something so people can read it. Have some courage. Be something. Ask God to bless you with gifts so that you can bring glory to God. I think we have this idea that Christianity is all about frugality. Closing in the ranks. Not trying anything. Being quiet. The, the crazy thing about Solomon, God made this man opulent to bring glory to him. It's kind of crazy. It's, isn't wealth a bad thing? Why? If used correctly, it could be one of the greatest things. Sometimes I think the problem with Christians, we're lazy and content. And we're satisfied easily. That's my problem. People who want more, by nature, pray more. Paul wanted to win the world. <laughs> and so he prayed. Think of it like this. What do you want for people? So like, you know that first question to what do you wish, what do you wish for? And normally we just wish for contentment, affluence, enough money to keep me happy. And I think that's what we kind of want for people. If that's really all we want, why would we ever tell anybody the gospel? Don't you think? Don't you think the greatest wish for somebody is eternal life? That is, I, I think that is the greatest, that is the greatest promise anybody could ever receive, is to live with the greatest king for all eternity. I did a funeral yesterday of a man who loved the Lord, and every time, funerals just have a way of shocking you every time you do them, and you know, I did the John verse for him. Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many mansions. If it were not so, or many rooms, I would have told you. And if I tell you, I'm going there to prepare a place for you. If I go to prepare a place for you, I'll bring you unto myself so you can be where I am. Do you know what that verse means? Oh, do you want that for people? I mean, really, to, to evangelism's core isn't just being, uh, I say more new. Evangelism's core is you want that for people. I want that for my kids. And I pray that we as a church would start wanting more things. It's hard because it takes work. But I think eternal life is going to be worth it. So the first question is, have you received his unconditional promise of salvation? And then the second question is, do you ask and do you follow if? That's how God really starts growing in your life. Let's pray.